You're listening to the Core Life Training. What is it? Core Life Training Podcast. Of course it is. With Jeff Olson. All right, all right, all right. What's up, my friends? This is Jeff, the Core Life Training Podcast. I am stoked to be back with you. We are going to dig into the Bible. We are going to get down with some killer tunes and cool out with a tasty, tasty drink of choice. Welcome, my friends, to episode number 18. So I've been on Zoom on Thursday nights at 7 o'clock answering some great Bible questions. It's been a blast for me. I think everybody else has had a pretty good time. Uh, We're doing what we can do while we're in the middle of this uh, pandemic and being stuck at home and not being able to meet together. We've already dealt with the Easter question, how could the crowd cry Hosanna, welcoming Christ as King on one day, and then turn right around and cry out, crucify him, crucify him two days later. So I answered that question in episode number 17. And in this episode, I want to deal with the question about Jesus between the time of his crucifixion and resurrection. Where did Jesus go? The gospels tell us he died and was was buried. And then the gospels say he rose again, but really don't say anything about what happened on Saturday between Good Friday and Easter Sunday. If you uh, read the Apostles' Creed or if the Apostles' Creed is part of your church tradition, you know that it says Jesus descended into hell. In this episode, I want to give you some background for that point of view. Where did that come from? Why is that in the Apostles' Creed? And more importantly, is it biblically true? Like, I want to sort out this question biblically. Where was Jesus on Saturday between his crucifixion and resurrection? Right, so let's get to it. Why don't you grab a Bible, grab your notebook, and grab your drink of choice, and let's get down to business. Uh, So anyway, the simple truth is that Jesus' body went into the grave uh, when he was buried, And then the question is, where did his spirit go in between Friday and Saturday? That's like the real big question. Everybody, I think, agrees or would agree that his body was in the grave. His body didn't go anywhere on Saturday. Um, The question is, where did his spirit go? And in a lot of traditions and in many people's just popular theology, uh, Jesus went to hell or someplace like that to do whatever he did. Um, And the reality is his spirit was with the Lord on Saturday. So his spirit was not in the underworld. He didn't go to limbo. He didn't go to um, Gehenna or Hades or Tartarus or Sheol. His spirit went to be with the Lord. And I'm going to give you a few passages. Luke chapter 23, verse 43. This is Jesus on the cross, and he's talking with, uh, or he's being talked about by the two criminals that are crucified next to him. And one of the crooks says to him, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And in verse 43, Jesus said to him, truly, I say to you today, you will be with me in paradise. So Jesus doesn't expect to spend Saturday somewhere else and then bring the thief with him to paradise. He says, today you'll be with me in paradise. And that word paradise, that Greek word paradise is used three times, only three times in the New Testament. It's used here. It's also used in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 4, where Paul talks about a vision of the Lord that he was given. Paul says, I was caught up into paradise, and I heard inexpressible words which a man is not permitted to speak. And this is where Paul talks about the revelation of Jesus that he got, about the gospel that he got directly from the Lord when he says he was caught up into paradise for this revelation. 
Um, where where is that? Most theologians would say, or most scholars would say, that would be um, he was caught up to the presence of the Lord to receive direct revelation from the Lord. But if that's not clear enough, let me take you to the other spot in the New Testament where the word paradise is used. And this would be in Revelation chapter 2, verse 7. And there's no mistaking this one. The uh, Apostle John writing to the church at Ephesus in chapter 2, verses 1 to 7, he says, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit has to say to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Now, where is the tree of life? Well, in Genesis chapter 2, it's in the Garden of Eden. But if you keep reading in the book of Revelation, like on into chapter 22, verse 2, you find out that the tree of life is actually in heaven or in the new heavens and on the new earth. Uh, the tree of life is in the presence of the Lord. He showed me a river of, uh, river of the water of life, clear as crystal coming from the throne of God and of the Lamb. So again, in this context, obviously this is the presence of the Lord, right? Where the Lord is. And in the middle of its street on either side of the river was the tree of life bearing 12 kinds of fruit. So here's the tree of life right in the presence of the Lord. Uh, if you skip ahead to verse 14, blessed are those who wash their robes so that they might have the right to, uh, right to the tree of life and they may enter by the gates into the city. And the city that's being described here is uh, the New Jerusalem. And that is in the book of Revelation where the Lord rules from heaven, or I mean rules over all the earth from the New, New Jerusalem. So this is the presence of the Lord, right? So um, when Jesus says, today you'll be with me in paradise, elsewhere in the New Testament, that means in the presence of the Lord. That doesn't mean somewhere else. It doesn't mean the nice part of hell where if you're a Roman Catholic or if you have a Catholic background, the nice part of the underworld where the saints go and where believers go before they go to heaven. We'll talk about that in a minute. He didn't go there. Paradise in the New Testament is in the presence of the Lord. Does that make sense? Okay, so Jesus says to the thief, today you'll be with me in paradise. He means you'll be with me today in the presence of the Lord. And then if you look just a couple verses later in Luke chapter 23, so let's skip back to Luke 23. Luke chapter 23, verse 46, this is when Jesus actually dies. He, he cried out with a loud voice saying, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. What is Jesus' expectation about his spirit as he's dying? He doesn't say, Father, I'm going to split for the underworld for a day. And I got some business to do down there. I have some devils to defeat and some demons to destroy and some victory to proclaim and some saints to loose and set free into heaven or anything like that. He says, into your hands, I commit my spirit. So Jesus' expectation, it seems, at least by his own words, is that he'll be released or he'll be done suffering and he'll be in the presence of the Lord. This seems to be his expectation immediately. When he dies, it seems to be his expectation when he talks to the thief next to him that today uh, our suffering will end and you'll be with me in paradise. And by the way, in 2 Corinthians 5, verses 6 to 8, this is exactly Paul's expectation for himself when he dies. So Paul has been, man, he, that guy has been through it. He's been uh, beaten on missionary journeys. He's been arrested. He's been thrown out of cities. He has suffered for the sake of the Lord. Um, and in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, uh, verses 6 to 8, Paul talks about his expectation. He says, Therefore, being always of good cheer or good courage, 
uh, knowing that while we are at home in the body, we are absent from the Lord, for we walk by faith, not by sight. We're of good courage. While we're at home in the body, we're not in the presence of the Lord, but we're of good courage because we know the truth. We know our future. He said uh, in verse 8, we're of good courage, I say, and I prefer rather to be absent from the body and to be at home with the Lord. So what is Paul's expectation for his own spirit when he finally dies? He's expecting death to come at some point, not in the too distant future. In the meantime, he says, I'm going to work hard for the Lord. I'm going to work hard on mission. Uh, I'm here to serve you, and I'm going to make sure my life matters for the kingdom. Um, And that's fine with me. He says, now I prefer it to be absent from the body and to just go ahead and be home with the Lord. Paul doesn't expect to be anywhere other than either alive working on Christ's mission or dead and alive in the presence of physically dead, but alive spiritually with the Lord. That's Paul's expectation as well. Same thing as Jesus was talking about. There's no, uh, there's no middle period here in between dying and being in the presence of the Lord for either Jesus or for Paul. And I'll argue when we do the class on, uh, death and the intermediate state and final judgment and all that kind of stuff. I'll, I'll argue there's there's no in-between here between us dying and being in the presence of the Lord as believers. Okay, so his body was in the grave and his spirit on Saturday was not anywhere other than in the presence of the Lord. Okay, does that make sense? That's right. So no, so Jesus didn't require any more suffering to make his work on the cross complete. He didn't need to do any more work in the underworld to prove or declare or gain his victory over the devil and the satanic world. His work on the cross, he, Jesus said it himself, it's finished. It's done, right? There's no more work that needs to be done here. All right, and then lastly, at the resurrection on uh, Sunday, his body and spirit were reunited so that believers, uh, some of his disciples, got to actually see him alive before he ascended to heaven. And I gave you the passages in the Gospels where Jesus appears to them bodily. And you'll remember um, in the end of the Gospel of John, John chapter 21, uh, 20 and 21, uh, some of the disciples doubted and weren't sure that this was really him. And Jesus even said, I want you to come touch me, right? Feel my hands and check my side out. So at the resurrection, spirit and body are rejoined. Okay, so that's how it happened for Jesus. Uh, He died. His spirit went to be with the Lord while his body was buried. And at the resurrection, spirit and body are rejoined. And by the way, that's exactly what we all expect as believers. That's, That's nothing different than what we expect. I expect I'll die. It's going to be way sooner than later, I know, because time is just going by too quick. I'm getting too old too fast. So it's going to be like next week, it feels like. Uh, but I expect to die. I expect to be buried. I expect some amount of time, right, between my death and my resurrection. 
And I expect that time for me to be spent in paradise with the Lord. I expect the same thing for you as believers, right? So what happened with Jesus, Paul says it, it's what we expect to. Okay, make sense? Sure. Yeah. So what was going on with Old Testament believers or Old Testament saints? Did they have sort of this waiting period while we waited or while I should say while they waited for Christ to actually do the work of redemption on the cross? Right. Were they waiting in some sort of limbo? Depends on who you ask about that. Definitely Roman Catholic official Roman Catholic theology. There's definitely a waiting period for the Old Testament saints. And Jesus, we'll talk about this here in just a little bit, that part of Jesus' work on Saturday was to go let those Old Testament saints loose. My, my short answer is um, their experience was the same as ours. Uh, for the Lord, it's, it was, it's not like God was in heaven going, well, I'd love for you to be in my presence. You know, you were a faithful saint, but I just can't because, you know, 800 or 1,000 or whatever, uh, some years from now, uh, my son's going to die on the cross, and I can't let you in until he does that, right? The Lord is in heaven, fully aware of his purpose and plan and his work, and can easily account for the saints uh, of the Old Testament based on Jesus' work that he preordained. Does that make sense? Already had, already had it in his purpose and plan that their sins were covered as well. So they don't have to wait to get their sins covered till later. Um, the payment is actually made in history and time on the cross. But David talks about, and this is Psalm 32. David says uh, in Psalm 32:1, how, how blessed is the person whose sins are forgiven, um, to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity. God doesn't count their sins against them. Right? So David even is imagining a scenario where God doesn't, and David's got some big sins, man. He's got the biggies, right? <laughs> Adultery and murder. Uh, but David is talking about the, the blessing, um, not in the future when sins will be forgiven, but for himself right then. And Psalm 32 is the companion psalm to Psalm 51. So Psalm 51 is where David uh, gets caught with Bathsheba and that whole thing. And Psalm 51 is his psalm of repentance. He says, against you and you only have I sinned. And Psalm 32 is the companion, the experience of forgiveness and David says, what a blessing it is to not have your sins counted against you. And David is not expecting to wait to have his sins forgiven till later. Okay, so let's, uh, let's move on to the whatabouts here in our last little bit of time together. What about the Apostles' Creed? And this is where, as a Lutheran or a Roman Catholic, for sure, you are exposed to this. If you're a community church kind of person, you might not have gotten exposed to the creeds very much. And so this may not be part of your background. Uh, but in the second section of the Apostles' Creed, uh, it says Jesus was crucified, died, and was buried, and he descended into hell and on the third day rose again from the dead. Let me just give you a little background on the Apostles' Creed. This is one of the creeds that was not uh, written and ratified, written and approved by a council, uh, like a particular church council. So like the Nicene Creed was written and approved at the Council of Nicaea. Like these guys got together they formulated the, the theological language. They all looked at each other and said, this is what we believe for sure, okay? 
Um, the Chalcedonian Creed, same thing. These creeds were written and decided upon by councils of scholars that agreed to each other. This is the core of the truth of what we believe. Um, the Apostles' Creed really um, got developed over the course of about 500 or so years. It really was never written and approved by any one group. It just sort of developed uh, over time from about 200 to 750 B, uh, AD. And the phrase, he descended into hell, is not in the very earliest versions of it, which is a little telling to me. It's not in the very earliest versions of the Apostles' Creed. It occurs once in 390, and then not again until about 650. And in 390, when it was included, the guy that included the phrase, he didn't mean by it that Jesus went to the underworld or the spirit world to do anything down there. What he meant by the phrase was he descended into the grave. So in Hebrew, the word Sheol can just mean grave. It doesn't have to mean like we would think of hell as the place of punishment the word Sheol can just mean the grave. And so when it originally got included in the Apostles' Creed, the original inclusion was just to indicate Jesus' burial and descent into the, into the tomb, into the grave. By the time you hit um, 650, uh, the Roman Catholic Church had really developed their theology of the underworld, of the world of the dead, and Jesus' victory over and his conquering over um, the spiritual forces in the, in the underworld. And so this phrase gets included at that point. That didn't provide the basis for the doctrine that Roman Catholics believed. It really just reflected what they were already working with. Does that make sense? They were kind of already working with the idea that Jesus went to the underworld and did some stuff when that got included in 650. So um, when I read the Apostles' Creed, I don't read that phrase. If, if I'm at a church that does that, um, and we have to responsibly read. I don't read that phrase because not because it's not in the Apostles' Creed, although it's really not in the main tradition of the Apostles' Creed. It's because it's not in Scripture. So what's reflected in the creeds is supposed to be what is reflected in Scripture, is what we actually believe from the Bible. Now, you can have a creed that says, I believe the moon is made of cheese, and that's fine. I don't care. Um, you can have a creed that says Jesus went to hell and threw a party or, you know, kick some demons butts or whatever, you, whatever you want to have in your creed. That's fine. I want to recite a creed that says the things biblically I'm supposed to believe. So I don't, I don't read that phrase when it comes time to read the apostles creed. And then, uh, Roman Catholic doctrine, just the super quick version. And, you know, you guys who have that background have kind of already indicated it. But essentially how this works for them is that the dead await final judgment, right? They don't go, unless you're like a super glory saint, you don't go straight to heaven. Most of us go probably to purgatory to have our sins cleansed even further. And it's purgatory is a place of torment. It's not a happy place. You don't, I was listening to one Catholic theologian just the other day. He goes, he goes, you know, the, the deepest part of hell where judgment happens, you don't want to go there. Purgatory. And he explains what purgatory is for. He goes, you don't want to go there. The problem is in Roman Catholic theology, just about everybody goes there. Every believer goes there for a time. So the dead await final judgment. Not in heaven, they, they await it in the underworld or in limbo, in the place of the dead. If you are a wicked person awaiting final judgment, you await judgment in torment. And if you are a righteous or a believing 
person who's waiting, you wait in a happy place. They call it Abraham's bosom. That comes from uh, Luke chapter 16, a parable that Jesus told. So the righteous dead wait in a happier place. Um, And what happens on Saturday is that Jesus basically goes to the gates of the underworld. He doesn't go all the way down to the very bottom circle of hell. If you're thinking of Dante's Inferno, there's like nine levels all the way down. He doesn't go down like where the devil lives. He goes to the gate of the entryway of the nice place in the underworld. And he proclaims his victory over the devil and over death. And he lets all of the Old Testament saints free, lets them loose and escorts them on into heaven. Okay, so that's essentially Roman Catholic theology in a in a super quick nutshell. And it's a it's a really a great story. I mean, I I, I spent a pretty good amount of time just kind of digging into the story and um, it's intricate and there's you know several levels of hell and it, it it really sounds compelling except almost none of it comes from scripture. Almost all of it comes from Roman Catholic tradition which they would equate in authority with written scripture and like almost none of their version of the story comes from the text of scripture. So I don't, I don't buy that either. Uh, but if you have that background, you might have the idea that Jesus went to the underworld and, and did that kind of thing. Biblically, that's not the way it worked out. Okay. So if you guys are good with all that, let's in our last 15 minutes or so, let's jump over to first Peter chapter three verses 18 to 20. Because this is actually, for a lot of people, a super tricky passage. Um, And if you already sort of have in your mind that on Saturday Jesus goes to the underworld, if that's kind of already what you think, this passage is going to back you up and support your thought, even though it's not what this passage is actually saying. Okay, So I I wanted to disabuse you of the notion that Jesus went anywhere other than to be with the Lord on Saturday, so that when we look at Second First uh, Peter chapter three, we're not thinking he's at the gates of the underworld, getting ready to yell and scream at the devils and set all the saints free. Okay, so First uh, Peter chapter three, verses eighteen to twenty, and I'll give you a little context uh, for First Peter. Um, the people that Peter is writing to are kind of all over the place. If you look at the beginning of First Peter, um, there are people that were from the same regions that are represented in Acts chapter 2 on the day of Pentecost. They're from all over the place. They've come to Jerusalem. They experienced the Lord and the gospel, and then they've they've all gone back. And so Peter's writing to these people that are in all kinds of different places, and they're suffering. They're suffering persecution from, from unbelievers. They're suffering for their faith, and Peter's trying to encourage them to be strong, uh, to be ready to give an account for their faith. Why is it that you believe what you believe? And to be able to explain Jesus and the good news to those people that are persecuting them. And in verse 18, he says, For Christ also died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust. I feel like I should just pause there for one second because that's the most awesome thing. Otherwise, it's the unjust who die for themselves. That's the alternative. Either the just and righteous one dies in our place or we pay the penalty for our own sins. And you may say, well, I've... I've got 51% good and 49% bad. And the Lord's like, yeah, and you have 0% perfect. You have 0% loving the Lord with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, 
which is the great command, right? And so your 51% good is still 49% screwed. You know what I'm saying? So the fact that the just died for the unjust is super important for the gospel. Otherwise, you're telling people that they better just get their act together, be nicer, or you're rearranging who God is. God doesn't really care that much, or God totally gets it, or, or whatever, right? But that's not the gospel. The good news is that the, the, the just died in the place of the unjust so that he might bring us to God, having been put to death in the flesh, which is what we've been talking about, right? Buried, put to death on the cross and buried, but made alive. And my English Bible, the New American Standard says, made alive in the spirit, small letter S, spirit. Made alive in the small S spirit. Is that what your text says? Does anybody's text say, made alive by the capital S spirit? Anybody? Mine does because I wrote it in there. And I wrote it in there because that's a better translation and gets at what Peter's talking about. How was Jesus raised from the dead? He didn't just go, I'm God, here I come. I'm alive again. No, God the Father raised Jesus from the dead by the power of the Holy Spirit. So when Peter says he was raised in the Spirit, that Greek phrase can also be translated by the Spirit. Like that's the means by which Jesus was raised, by the Spirit. And biblically, that would be by the power of the Holy Spirit. He was raised by the power of the Holy Spirit, by which... That is, by the Holy Spirit, Jesus also went and made proclamation to the spirits who are now in prison, who were once disobedient when the patience of God kept waiting in the days of Noah. Right? So let me, let me give you a quick Jeff Olson translation or paraphrase of what Peter's saying. Jesus, by the power of the Spirit, preached to disobedient people in the days of Noah. This is not on Saturday between... Good Friday and Easter Sunday. He preached to disobedient people in the days of Noah by the power of the Holy Spirit. And those people are now, they were disobedient, alive people, and now they're spirits who are kept in prison. So he didn't go to hell or the realm of the dead before the resurrection. He preached to disobedient, uh, preached to disobedient people at the time of Noah through Noah by the power of the Holy Spirit. In other words, Noah was a prophet in his time, speaking by the Spirit. Does that make sense just as a concept? I'm going to show you the truth of it here in a second. But does the concept make sense? That Christ would speak through Noah to the disobedient people of Noah's day. Just like he preached through Isaiah to the disobedient people of Isaiah's day. Or Ezekiel's day. So let me show you how it works. If you go back to 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 11... Peter has uh, opened his letter uh, talking about the great hope that we have as believers uh, from the gospel. And in verse 10, he says, As to this salvation, the prophets who prophesied of the grace that would come to you made careful searches and inquiries, seeking to know what person or time the Spirit of Christ within them was indicating as he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. So, Peter's reading the story of the Old Testament and the prophets speaking of the king who would come in the last day. And they didn't know exactly who that guy was going to be. And they searched and they wondered and they waited and they hoped in the king who would come in the last day. And Peter says it was Christ who was speaking through them in their day, through the prophets. So on the one hand, we have biblical precedent for the idea that Christ was speaking to and through the prophets 
in the past, right? We already have that just right here in the context of Peter, 1 Peter. And if you look over at 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 5, Peter will give you his impression of what Noah was all about. Uh, 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 4, For God did not spare angels when they sinned, but he cast them into hell and committed them to pits of darkness reserved for judgment. And he did not spare the ancient world, but he preserved Noah. Now he's talking about Genesis uh, chapter 6 through 9. But he preserved Noah, a preacher of righteousness. That word preacher comes from the same root word that we have in 1 Peter chapter 3, where he went and preached to the disobedient people in the days of Noah. Noah was a preacher of righteousness. So on the one hand, you got Noah, a preacher of righteousness in 2 Peter. And in 1 Peter chapter 1, you have Christ speaking through the prophets of old. And in 1 Peter chapter 3, then with that in mind, you read chapter 3, verse 18, Christ died for sins once for all the just for the unjust, so that he might bring us to God, having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive by the Spirit, by which, by the Holy Spirit, he went and preached to the spirits who are now in prison, but they were disobedient in the days of Noah. Yeah, that's the okay. So that's the very next thing. That's the very next thing in your notes. So Peter's talking about people who are now in prison, spirits who are now in prison, but he's referring to them at a time when they were alive in the past. They were disobedient in the days of Noah. If I said something like, I knew the quarterback for the Seattle Seahawks when he was in high school, I'm talking about what he is now. I'm using the title of what he is now, the quarterback of the Seahawks, but I'm really referring to him when I knew him in the past, right? When he was in high school. Does that make sense? So when Peter says he preached to the spirits who are now in prison, he's really referencing the time that he preached to them when they were disobedient in the days of Noah and he preached to them through Noah. And let me give you a biblical example, another biblical example of talking about the dead now when really you're talking about when they were alive. You're calling them dead, but you're talking about when they're alive. A look at Ruth chapter 1, verse 8. Elimelech and Naomi and their sons, they decide to bail out. There's a famine in the land, and rather than repent before the Lord, which is what you should do because famine is a sign of judgment, in the story of the Old Testament thus far, instead of repenting, they decide they're going to solve it themselves and they're going to, um, they're going to travel. They're, going to, they're basically just going to move. They're going to go to enemy territory and move to Moab. That sounds like a great idea. Well, when they get to Moab, Naomi's husband, Elimelech, dies. And so Naomi doesn't have any sons. She doesn't have any husbands. She's got two daughters-in-law now, two Moabite daughters-in-law. And Naomi's pissed. She's really mad about life. She's mad at the Lord. And the whole thing. And she says to her two daughters-in-law, go return each of you to her mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. Now, does she mean that her daughters-in-law were really nice to her two dead sons when they were dead? No, she's talking about how the two daughters-in-law treated her sons when her sons were alive even though she's talking about them as they're dead now. So Peter's doing essentially the same thing. Their spirit's now in prison, but he's talking about what happened when they were alive, 
when they were disobedient in the days of Noah, that Christ by the Spirit preached to the disobedient in Noah's day through Noah. So then let's put 1 Peter chapter 3, 18 to 20 in the broader context. And I gave you a, a chart in your notes. Um, and I, I got this from uh, Wayne Grudem from a paper that he wrote for the Journal of the Evangelical Theological Society in, in 1991. And it was really helpful. It was on this very topic. And this was a really helpful chart comparing Peter's audience to the story of Noah. And you can see the connections that Peter's trying to make here. So in the story of, in, in the book of Peter, his audience is a righteous minority. And in the days of Noah, Noah and his family were a righteous minority. They're surrounded by hostile unbelievers in First Peter. Noah's family was surrounded by hostile unbelievers as well. In the context of First and Second Peter, Peter's arguing that judgment is near, it's coming, God's judgment is at hand. That's the same thing Noah was preaching and nobody was listening. Peter calls on believers to witness boldly to the people that are around them. And uh, Noah witnessed boldly. In fact, Peter calls him a preacher of righteousness in his day. Peter talks about us speaking in the power of Christ. And I would argue in 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 18 to 20, that Noah preached in the power of Christ. And then Peter gives the hope that in the last day, no matter how we suffer this side of glory, in the last day we'll, we'll be saved in the end. And we know from the story of Genesis, but Peter also mentions it here in his book, uh, that in the end, Noah and his family were saved. So there's this whole narrative link between Peter's audience and his writing in First and Second Peter and the story of Noah that he's quoting and referring to in First in Peter chapter 3. So for all those reasons, I take First Peter chapter 3 not to be talking about Christ on Saturday in hell or anywhere even close to hell. I take that to be talking about Jesus speaking through Noah in the days of Noah, calling the wicked of Noah's day to repentance and preaching righteousness. But you can see, if you already have a conception of Jesus going to the underworld on Saturday, 1 Peter 3 sort of immediately sounds like, oh yeah, see, that's definitely what he did. But that's not what the author of 1 Peter is getting at, not at all, in, in my opinion. All right, dig it, guys. I hope that was helpful for you. And if you have any Bible or theology questions you'd like me to answer, just hit me up at jeff at corelifetraining.org. You can message me at the Core Life Training Facebook page or the Instagram page as well. Uh, next week, I have a two-part episode coming up on the spiritual gift of speaking in tongues in which I'm going to make people from both sides of that debate mad, and I'm going to show you why from Scripture. So you can look forward to that two-parter coming next week. Hey, thanks for checking this episode out. Don't forget, after the outro is the drink of choice and the metal moment if you dig it. And it's a good one this week, as they always are. All right, y'all. My name is Jeff Olson. I teach the Bible, and I will check you later. Right on, man. Thanks for sticking around after the outro for the drink of choice and the metal moment. I hope you guys love this stuff the way I do. Uh, I'm hanging out with my two best friends tonight, Chris and Lenny. And when we do, we normally have some beers or some drinks or some whatever. Uh, we'll crack some jokes. We'll reminisce about the old days. We'll talk about what's going on in life. Uh, they're two guys that just super encourage me all the time. And they're there for me no matter what. And so those guys are essentially my pack. And the pack's hanging out tonight. 
And so the drink of choice is actually coming from tonight. I'm not having it with this episode. I'm going to have it later tonight. And I'm going to break form. Normally, it's an imperial stout or some good IPA or something like that. I'm breaking form, and tonight is going to be a whiskey smash or a whiskey sour made with my favorite whiskey, Maker's Mark. So that's going to be the drink of choice tonight. A little bit of lemon juice, a little bit of simple syrup, a little bit of ice in the cup, and uh, shake it all up, and it's all good, man. That's what's uh, the drink of choice for tonight. And for this episode's Metal Moment, I want to bring you one of my favorites right now. This is a band called Hippie Death Cult. They're a local band from here in Portland. Uh, I got to see them twice already this year before the stupid pandemic shut down live shows. So Lenny and I got to see these guys twice. We had tickets to see them two more times in the last couple of months. So we've missed two more shows from these guys. And I got to be honest, man, they just kill it. Like live, they're amazing. We saw them at the Bunk Bar here in Portland. Uh, There was, I don't know, maybe 200 people slammed into this little building and Lenny and I were at the stage. The stage was basically 12 inches tall. So essentially, we were on stage with the band, and Lenny almost had his face bashed by the bass guitar. Uh, it was such an amazing show, and uh, they closed it out with a killer, killer rendition of Fairies Wear Boots by Black Sabbath, which is one of my favorite Sabbath songs. So anyway, uh, this is Hippie Death Cult, and this is off their record 111. Uh, It's just been reprinted, I guess. And so they have a few more uh, copies of these uh, on their band camp. And I I got one at their live show, one of the shows that we did get to see. But they've reprinted it and they have a few left. And uh, anyway, you should go over to their band camp or Spotify or Apple Music, whatever it is that you listen to music on, and check them out. And you want to get one of their records for sure. And when this quarantine stupid thing is over with, uh, this is one of the first bands that I want to check out again here live in Portland. So here's Hippie Death Cult with the track called Tree Hugger off their album 111. Once you grab another drink of choice, kick back, crank it up, and I will check you later. 